What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the law, with regards to the Bible? You might immediately think of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus referred to these books as the law of Moses in Luke 24, verse 44, when he said, All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Obviously, those books contain lots more than laws. The legal portions are the last half of Exodus, most of Leviticus, and portions of both Numbers and Deuteronomy. So that might be what you think of as the law. You might think of the Ten Commandments as a kind of summary of the law. We know that the two tablets of the law contained on one side how and why we are to love God, while on the other side how and why we are to love our fellow man. Thus, when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. But we're not done yet, however, describing the law. The Jews developed a tradition handed down by rabbis that the law consists of 613 commandments. This shows up in Jewish writings between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the 3rd century. In the 4th century, a rabbi named Simlai declared that there were 365 negative commandments and 248 positive ones, totaling 613. While we might refer to the Ten Commandments, Jews would refer to the 613 commandments. This may have, in fact, been the background of the question posed to Jesus about which was the greatest commandment. Although there is nothing in writing prior prior to 70 AD about the 613 rules, this was probably already something the first century Jews were familiar with. Regardless exactly what a Jew listening to Paul's letter being read might think the law meant, he was aware of verses in the scriptures that said things like, Romans 10 verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. On the surface, it would seem God was encouraging you to keep the law, and thus achieve a right standing with him. It would seem that there was a righteousness which is of the law. There is. The problem is, no one could ever hope to perfectly obey and keep the law. James put it like this, James 2 verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. The law is unforgiving that way. I've often used the example of being pulled over by a policeman for speeding. The fact that I am keeping many other laws does not cancel out the fact that I broke one law. I am a lawbreaker. I am guilty. There had better be another way of getting right with God, or else we're all lost. The other way, the only way, is the righteousness of faith. Romans 10, verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Quoted from Deuteronomy, these verses have a dual application. First, read them as you would find them in Deuteronomy without the mention of Jesus in parentheses. They indicate that the righteousness of the law is impossible. When he says, who will ascend into heaven, he is talking about those who seek to be right before God by living saintly lives that would be deserving of heaven. It's an exaggeration, as if you could be so righteous that you would simply ascend into heaven. On the other hand, you can't descend into the abyss. In other words, no amount of suffering for your sin in the next life could ever atone for it sufficiently for you to earn the right to enter heaven. Secondly, Paul inserts the person of Jesus Christ into these verses, applying them to him. He both descended from heaven and ascended back 
to heaven. Jesus descended in his incarnation as God come in human flesh. He ascended after being raised from the dead. The righteousness of faith, then, is to reject any hope you could achieve righteousness by keeping the law and simply receive God's righteousness, to be declared righteous because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man in his incarnation, who is resurrected from the dead. What is meant by faith? Verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. When Paul says the word is near you, he means to link that with the phrase in parentheses, that is the word which we preach. In other words, salvation is not hard to find. It is being proclaimed in numerous ways by God's servants. The word was in their mouth, that is their language, their common conversation. Likewise, it was in their heart, or we might say mind, meaning it could be understood. The word of faith is the teaching of the righteousness of faith. The message of righteousness by faith comes to you in a language you can understand. It pleads for a decision. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth can be rendered profess. Paul has in mind a public profession of faith. In other words, you publicly acknowledge the truth about Jesus. This can be tempered by circumstances, like in communist China or elsewhere, you must go underground as a Christian. The norm is for you to let others know that you have come into an understanding of who Jesus really was and is. You profess the Lord Jesus. There's a lot packed into that title. Concerning Jesus, John in chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Flesh doesn't just mean a human body. It means he came in the fullness of humanity. He was fully God, but simultaneously fully human, in a union we can never totally comprehend. Jesus was and remains the unique God-man. It's not enough for someone to believe that a man, a historical figure named Jesus, once lived. It's not enough to believe he was a great teacher or philosopher. You must believe in the biblical doctrine of the Incarnation. As to the title Lord, it is kurios in the Greek. A.T. Robertson writes, No Jew would do this who had not really trusted Christ, for kurios in the Septuagint is used of God. No Gentile would do it who had not ceased worshiping the emperor as kurios. The word kurios was and is the touchstone of faith. It is also essential that you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. This is more than just knowing that Jesus rose from the grave. You must believe that God raised him from the dead, just as he said, and just as he described in the Bible, in a literal, physical body. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believing this with the heart is more than intellectual knowledge. It implies a trusting in the knowledge. Confession is not a condition, but a consequence. If on Jesus Christ you trust, speak of him, you surely must. Confessing and believing are not two separate or two sequential steps to salvation. They are simultaneously true. We know that because Paul reversed the order as he wrote about them. He said in verse 9 that you confess and believe. Then in verse 10 he says you believe and confess. He is showing you salvation from two perspectives, from God's and from man's. From man's perspective, you say someone is saved based upon what they say. From God's perspective, he and he alone sees that someone is saved. There was more going on behind this chapter than an explanation of the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith was being proclaimed widely to Gentiles. 
One of the big issues in the first century was whether or not a Gentile must also convert to Judaism in order to be saved. Certain teachers, called Judaizers, said yes. The true answer, of course, was no. Another huge concern, and really the reason for chapters 9, 10, and 11, was the question of what God was doing with his chosen nation, Israel. If the gospel was going out to Gentiles, was God through with Israel? These next three verses, 11, 12, and 13, establish that the righteousness of faith was God's way of salvation for the Gentile and the Jew alike. The overall context of these chapters is that God has put his prophetic plan for Israel on hold while he calls out a people for himself, but that he will again turn his attention to Israel in the future. For now, in this age in which we live, Jews get saved the same way Gentiles get saved. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is quoted from Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, which reads, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Jesus, of course, is the stone. Notice in the Isaiah passage the word act hastily are used. This was a prophecy of Jesus Christ coming, and the Jews were being told to not be impatient for the fulfillment of this prophecy, but to patiently wait for it, knowing that it was for an appointed time. The time had come. There's a lot of stuff packed into this idea of the stone, the foundation, the precious cornerstone. For one thing, there there was a prophecy that the builders would reject the chief cornerstone. It was a metaphor of how the leaders of the nation of Israel would reject Jesus as the promised Messiah. To confess Jesus as Messiah was to go against the religious leaders of Israel. It was to go against your family, and in many cases, to be disowned and dishonored. So the Holy Spirit updated the words in Isaiah, made them applicable to the first century Jew by saying, "...whoever believes on him will not be put to shame." They might be disowned on earth, but in heaven the angels were rejoicing. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. When Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, he means there is no difference between them regarding God's plan of salvation. Salvation is available to both and is received the same way by both. He is not saying that there is no such thing anymore as the nation of Israel. He is talking here about how individuals from all nations receive salvation, not about God's dealings with individual nations. Chapter 11 will make it clear that the literal nation of Israel, the literal physical descendants of Abraham, are still important in God's prophetic scheme. Verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a quote from Joel 2.32. Proof after proof from the Old Testament is what Paul was offering these Jews. He was illuminating their scriptures. Whoever from among the Jews and Gentiles and who calls upon the name of the Lord by faith shall be saved. One commentator said, One could scarcely wish for a simpler statement of the way of salvation than is found in these words. All who call and whoever calls, the gospel is a universal call to anyone, anywhere, at any time. The Apostle Peter at the church council in Jerusalem made a remarkable statement, Acts 15 verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The Judaizers were wrongly saying that Gentiles must be saved the same way Jews were, by the righteousness which is of the law. Peter's statement not only nullifies that, it establishes that Jews need to be saved the way the Gentiles are, by the righteousness of faith. As a quick final application, don't be taken in by folks wanting you to take up some of the habits and rituals of the law. 
It's big right now, but it's a step away from the freedom you have in Jesus Christ.